Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, April 23rd, 2023. The share ID numbers for Friday, April 23rd are the following. The 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Group meeting, share ID number is 20183, 20,183. And then the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Group meeting, share ID number is 20184, 20,184. This morning, A Vision for You presents Steps 6 and 7, How I Show Up. The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous was written as a set of steps, principles, and prayers, a standard by which an individual can recover from the disease of alcoholism. Overeaters Anonymous, the 12-step fellowship where you find yourself in attendance this morning, with, along with A Vision for You, is patterned after this standard. We come together to offer support to each other following the 12 steps of this program of recovery. Steps one and two are a set of spiritual principles that are structured chronologically for recovery from the disease of compulsive overeating, each one leading to and building upon the next. It is a sacred journey. We overcome compulsive overeating using these 12 steps to affect a personality change into a true, true transformation of ourselves, to change what we had fallen down into to that which our higher power had destined us for us to be. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. We discover that we're that there are boundaries in our personalities and in our behavior that block us. I'm saying boundaries, but actually I meant to say behaviors in our personality and our behavior that block us from relationship with everything. Step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. We are now practicing the behavior of being right-sized. We are no longer seeking to be too big nor too small, asking power to transform us. Our presentation today will focus on steps six and seven of the 12 steps and how we now show up in our lives, that we now understand that we are recovered. Joining us this morning, bringing the big book instructions to life on steps six and seven is Tony Ann A. Tony Ann is from the state of New Jersey and is a recovered compulsive overeater living daily in these steps. As a teacher and a member of Overeaters Anonymous and a vision for you, she will share her experience and her wisdom with us this morning. We want to make sure that, that you come to the line this morning by welcome you, welcoming you warmly and press star one. Good morning, Tony Ann A. Tony Ann, if you would give a quick star one to unmute your mic. Sorry about that. Good morning. I'm talking away here to myself. <laughs> good morning, everybody. Thank you, Melanie, for that beautiful introduction. And good morning to my OA Vision family. So happy to be here this morning. Um, I'd like to say, you know, you're probably going to be, you're curious. You're probably here because you were curious about what I'm going to talk about here today, steps six and seven. And curiosity is associated, it's been known to be associated with a higher level of positive emotions. So I hope that you are going to uh, settle in and have a positive experience here with me this morning. 
so step six and seven, how I show up. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about my history. I'm going to explain uh, um, what's happened in my life. I've had a, a recent transformation that's just been astonishing, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit in my life, about um, step six and seven, and how I show up, pretty much. So I came from a family. I'm going to just give you a, a quick, brief history. I come from a family where um, there was gambling and alcoholism. I'm sure a lot of us can talk about our past, and we probably have had similar situations. But from a very young age, I was taught to answer the phone, and somebody would be a bill collector or somebody would be on the other line, and I was asked to say little fibs and, you know, they're not available or the check is in the mail, whatever it was at the time that I was asked to, to say for my parents. And so dishonesty goes way back. It is actually something that I was asked to, and taught when I was very young to be dishonest. And with that dishonesty, there came a lot of shame. Um, we, because my parents or my dad was a gambler, there was money issues growing up all my life. I can remember, I was thinking back about this, being dri driven to school in the morning and my father had this terrible car, it was all beat up. We used to say, tell my father that we were gonna meet friends down the block and <laughs> to drop us off like a, a couple of blocks away from school. But there were no friends that were going to be meeting us there. We used to ask them to drop us off there because we didn't want anybody at the school to see the car that my dad was driving. And so from a very young age, the shame that I felt about the situation that I was in caused me to have dishonesty. And that stayed with me for a long time in my life. And probably to some extent, you know, it's something that will always be with me inherently that I have to fight against. But what's so beautiful is that I have been able to have a transformation in this program to let go of that shame that I lived with for most of my life and thereby being able to let go of a lot of the dishonesty that I felt that I needed in order to survive, in order to be just like everybody else. So in um, the year 2000, I, through the, through the uh, grace of doing a breast cancer walk, I met somebody who 12-stepped me. I had been eating. Um, that shame and that dishonesty that I felt from growing up at a very young age, the only way that I knew how to get past that and how to be okay with what my reality was, was by eating. And I picked up food at a very young age. I couldn't even tell you, probably before I was even 10. At one point, I remember my mom taking me to the doctor and the doctor saying that my blood sugar was high as a child and that I had to stop eating sugar. And I can remember being in school, in uh, grammar school, uh, people celebrating birthdays and bringing in treats for the birthdays. And I always had to have a separate type of a treat because I was never allowed to have those sweet things. And because I wasn't allowed to have it, it only made me want to have it more. And it made me feel as though I was set apart and that everybody else was entitled to have things in life except for me. I wasn't entitled to have what everybody else had. I had to be less than because I wasn't equal to. And that's pretty much the message that I had in my head for a long time growing up. So um, I did all normal things despite that message that was in my head. I, I, um, I got a job, I got married, I had babies. Um, having a baby was a great excuse for me to start eating. Um, I started actually, well, let me back up a little bit. I started binging and purging very, uh, I started binging very young. I started purging at about 14 years old. 
I met somebody whose older sister was a bulimic, and I learned uh, that terrible habit of binging and purging. And so for a long time, I did that. When I got pregnant, I basically put down everything that I had been using to numb myself. I put down food, I put down alcohol, I put down drugs, um, because now I had this child inside me, and, and that, of course, was going to change my life. But the one thing that I was not able to put down or not willing to put down at that time was food. And I continued to eat and eat and eat. But during the pregnancy, I never purged. So, of course, within probably seven months, I gained about 60 pounds. I forget if it was 60 to 80 pounds, some, some incredible amount of weight during my pregnancy. After my first pregnancy, I was able to get some of the weight off. But very quickly after my first pregnancy, within a year, I was pregnant again and found myself once again gaining an incredible amount of weight. After the second pregnancy, I was not able to get the weight off. No matter what I did, it was, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I have changes in my life, I, I would have a difficult time dealing with those changes. And the change of having two babies, I had given up my job at that time. I started working for myself at home. And it was like the, the combination of all those changes happening at once really set me into a spin. And the only thing that I knew how to do is what I had always done all my life to deal with what I was feeling or what I didn't want to feel. And that thing was to eat. So my eating started getting really bad and I wasn't able to get out of my maternity clothes. And um, I had decided at that point to do a breast cancer walk because I thought that if I walked, not because I was so uh, into the cause of breast cancer or so righteous that I was going to do something for service for others. It was a completely selfish reason. I did it because I wanted to lose weight, and I thought that if walking 60 miles would cause me to lose weight. Just like because I always thought that if I, if I lost weight and I was thin, then I would be equal to what everybody else was, and I would deserve what everybody else had. So I did this walk, and of course at the end, um, nothing in my life changed. Barely even a number on the scale. I was still clocking in at close to 200 pounds. And I remember during that time that I had met somebody on the walk, and she told me about the OA program. And so in October 2000, I walked into my first meeting. Um, and for a long time, I, I, the very first thing I did was uh, pick up the tools. I, I got a sponsor. I started uh, doing writings. I would write down my food every day. I uh, tried to work the steps to the best of my ability. And I had some physical abstinence. I, was, I got entirely abstinent, and I got very quickly, I got down to a goal weight. Um, by the spring of 2001, I was probably below what a goal weight should have been, but I was really feeling good about myself, and, and I was able to achieve some things uh, being abstinent. What I did not have, really, was a personality change, but I did have a change in my clothing size, and, and that made me feel more confident. And so I, I, on that confidence... Um, I decided to go back to school uh, to be a court reporter. I had a medical transcription service up until then. So I went back to school, and court reporting school was one of the hardest things I ever had to do, I think, in my life. Uh, during the time that I was going to school, my mom was sick with cancer, and she was dying. And I remember, um, I don't know if you guys like, really know, like a court reporter, I'm the person that's in court recording the testimony on that little machine as people are talking. And to learn that skill, it was a really difficult skill. And the reason why I want to tell you this is because I kept making mistakes and I kept failing. 
I would type, you know, I would type the wrong word or I wasn't hearing things. So, you know, concentrating was, it was a challenge. And I had to learn, you know, one step at a time, one day at a time, how to go from not being able to do the skill to being able to do the skill. And it reminds me a lot about when I came into the program. You know, I came into this program so twisted up with things, so full of my past, my negative thinking, my old ideas, my selfishness, my low self-esteem. And if I had known how to fix myself on my own, trust me, I, I would have fixed myself. I wouldn't have been here. I would have been off living my wonderful life. But I didn't know what I didn't know. And I didn't have what I needed at that time, which was a program of recovery, which was going to allow me to make these changes in my life. <clears throat> I'm going to just turn to um, page 62. It says, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We stepped on the toes of our fellows, and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation. But we invariably find that at some time in the past, we made decisions based on self, which later placed us to be in a position which we were hurt. So I'm going to come back to court reporting school in a little bit, but I want to tell you that in 2011, I was separated from my husband after being abstinent for a period of time. Not necessarily recovered. I wouldn't say I was recovered. I hadn't had a transformation in my life, but I was working a program of, um, at that time, the eight tools and abstinence. And I ended up, um, we ended up ending the marriage, and it was a really difficult time for me in my life. I had finished court reporting school, and I was working for myself. And during that time period, before I had ended up getting uh, separated and divorced, I had been working by my, you know, for myself, and my husband was getting a bonus in the beginning of the year, and I wasn't paying taxes all year. And then at the beginning of the year, when he got the bonus, we would we would submit our taxes combined and uh, the money that was uh, left over that we had to pay, it was never a, a big amount because we were, you know, we were um, combining our taxes. We would pay with the bonus. It would usually be a couple of hundred dollars or something of that nature. Well, after I got divorced from my husband, um, I never put that money. I hadn't put that money aside for that entire year. That first year, he filed taxes on his own separately, and I was forced to file taxes myself separately. And what happened was I did not have that money saved to pay for that taxes. And life became really scary. So I don't know if anybody else has ever had this experience. You find yourself in a position in life where you have to make choices that are scary, that are necessary. And at that point, I really, I was so broken. I didn't know what to do. You know, I was, like I said, I was barely hanging on to abstinence. I was abstinent, but I hadn't had a uh, change in my personality. I don't necessarily think I was working a program other than to make phone calls and go to meetings and work a food plan. And so what happened was I, I didn't pay my taxes. I didn't have the money. Um, and so it kind of snowballed from there. And, uh, and I'm, I'm telling you this not, I'm telling you there's a purpose to my story. <laughs> you can get to it now that the 12 steps have helped me in my life. But the problem with the taxes and the money became really big. It became really big. So maybe there's somebody on the line right now that has something that they're dealing with in their life that's 
really big. It might not be financial. It might be something else. Maybe, maybe the problem with my body, my weight has gotten really big. And I come to a point where it's so overwhelming, I just don't know how to deal with it. And so what I did at that time to deal with it was the only thing that I knew, the only experience that I had as an addict, and that was to numb myself with food. I numbed myself with food because I was so frightened and I was so confused. I didn't know how to untangle the, the problems and, and the devilments that I had created in my very own life. And so eventually um, I went out of program for a period of time because it was so painful. I didn't know, I couldn't sit there and pretend like I was okay. And then when I left program, instead of things being better, it only became worse. Everything was falling down upon me. I had all types of financial problems, legal problems, relationship problems. And um, eventually what happened is I came back to program um, uh, many of you might have heard my story before. I ended up having, a, I'm not a, an alcoholic, but I ended up having a DUI. I wasn't eating one day. I had a couple glasses of wine, got in a car and drove, and I ended up arrested. Uh, from there, I went back to, they made me go to meetings for like a, some type of 16-week program or 12-week program at the time. This was like 2014. Um, and as soon as I got my license back, the very first thing I did was drive myself to an OA meeting. And I was just so twisted up at that time. I, I really was so uncomfortable. It was hard to live uh, my life without numbing myself to try to be in the reality of what the disasters I had created for myself. But I knew that I needed to do something, and I knew that I needed help to do it. And so I came back into program, and I knew that I needed a higher power, that, that the problems in my life were bigger than what I could do, what I could fix. I came back in, and I met this woman who um, was very passionate about when she shared. And as a matter of fact, she actually oftentimes would get emotional and cry because she, it's a saying that this program had made such a profound change in her life. And she, quite frankly, she frightened me, but I knew that that was the person. <laughs> the very thing that frightened me was exactly the thing that I needed. I asked that woman to sponsor me, and she took me through the 12 steps of recovery as they're written in the big book. And I do have to tell you, I had a very, very different experience than I had had before. That was October 2014. And one of the things that I had written about on my fourth step again and again was this problem that I had had with the taxes. So by this time, I was working with the IRS and trying to set up a payment plan for them. But every year, it was a lot for me to try to pay the back taxes and the current taxes at the same time. Expenses were getting higher and higher. So I knew that I needed to do something about it. So let me tell you a little bit about how I worked the steps. So I knew I was powerless over food. I know I'm powerless over my character defects in my life. Um, that, that was a no-brainer. You know, I, I came in here basically as low as I could be. And what I needed to do was to find something to the belief, to believe that there was something that was going to change my life. I needed some type of hope. And the way that I was able to find hope was by seeing people in program who had had that transformation. I saw people that were genuine, uh, who were living their best lives, and I believed in those people. I believed in what, what I saw, what I saw in them, what I saw in the rooms. And I believed in um, the, this program, and I believed that it was going to work for me. So by believing in it, that meant that I was going to take the steps that were required. 
And in step three, I made a decision that I was going to go all in. I wasn't going to do the hokey pokey, put my one hand in, one hand out, one foot in, one foot out. I had decided that this time I was going to allow my whole self to go into this program and to see if I was going to be able to get the results that I had seen in other people had happened. And so with that, I did. And that meant that I was going to have to make a fearless and thorough moral inventory of myself. And so I, I decided to do my fourth step. I did it in a format. I was given these forms, and they had various columns. And I, well, I just want to say that uh, some people do things differently. And what I've learned is that it's okay if there's people out there, or maybe you do your tenth or fourth steps differently than I do. It doesn't mean that one way is right and one way is wrong. I'm just going to explain to you the um, experiences that I had. Um, and it doesn't mean if your experiences are different that it wasn't correct. Everybody does things their own way. So I worked with these columns. Column one was the cause, uh, the, you know, what, what it was that I was resentful over. Column two, the cause. Column three, what it affected. And then column four, the most important part was what is my part? What is my part in my disturbance? And then what character defects? And of course, we're talking today about character defects. What character defects allowed me to do my part? Where had I been selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, or afraid? And so in, in doing this, I was able to categorize or catalog uh, my character defects. I just want to go back for a second to step three. You know, there's a step three prayer. And for a long time, I loved that step three prayer. And what I loved about it was the part that said, um, take away my difficulties. Because I had so many difficulties. I don't know about you guys, but I had so many difficulties that I wanted to have removed from me. Uh, <laughs> I wanted my financial problems to be straightened out. I wanted to be in a thin body. I wanted to have fantastic relationships. <laughs> I wanted to have all these things in my life. But then through working the steps and working this program, what I realized is that the difficulties in my life are not the circumstances. Ha ha, right? What a shock to me. The difficulties that they're talking about in this prayer are my character defects. The character defects, those are my difficulties, not the circumstances in my life. The circumstances that I'm experiencing, that is called life. It's always going to happen. But my character defects are kind of like a filter that help me to experience what I am going through in either a positive or a negative way. It depends on how I look at it. In step two in the chapter, Bill talks about having a different perception. Oftentimes in the big book, we hear the, the word prejudiced. And prejudiced is a preconceived idea not based on fact. And so what are facts in my life? Facts are my experiences, right? Things that I've been through. So I had a lot of preconceived ideas that weren't based on experiences I've had. They were based on just conjecture that I thought. So I thought oftentimes that the experiences in my life, I didn't really understand everything that was happening. You know, I looked at it through my own filter, which was skewed. You know, in the big book, we hear about having my, my, the lenses and my glasses in backwards. <laughs> so how was I to fix this? This was the, the problem and the dilemma that I found myself in. I just want to turn uh, to the doctor's opinion. 
If we go to uh, Roman numeral uh, 27, which is XXVII, Dr. Silkworth talks about, we doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. I oftentimes will read this chapter with people in the beginning. I, I didn't really understand what moral psychology was, so I decided to do a little bit of research. And what I found is actually most interesting about moral psychology, it actually was a real thing back at the time in the 30s. And what it was was the study of moral identity development or how people integrate moral ideals with the development of their own character. It's the study of moral identity development or how people integrate moral ideals with the development of their own character. And what I find is that at the end of the day, this whole transformation is about changing my ideals. And what exactly is an ideal? I'm going to be talking about that a little bit this morning. So let me tell you what that is. An ideal is a principle to be aimed for. A principle to be aimed for. You know, if I'm going on a trip and I'm traveling somewhere, if I don't know where I'm going, it makes it a lot harder to get there. <laughs> so um, a principle that I aim for. So in step two, I turn my, I made a decision, well, excuse me, in step two, I come to believe that I can be different. And in step three, I make a decision that I'm going to try to follow this path so that I can have a different experience. Step four is kind of the, the format that I use in order to begin this transformation. So during the pandemic, um, I had been going to the gym because for me, movement is a part of my, my program. It's important that I keep my body moving. Um, just the same thing is important that I keep my program moving forward. So I work on that movement every day. Usually I go to the track. And I was having this pain in my foot for a while. Um, my daughter is going to be, um, both of my children was pretty much grew up in this, pro with my, their mom in this program. I like to say my, my kids grew up in this program. <laughs> and so she is going to be taking her boards next week. Uh, hopefully we'll be listening to this in the future one day saying congratulations. She passed her boards for uh, a physical therapist. So I was telling my daughter that I had this pain in my foot, and she was watching the way that I was walking. She noticed that my foot, my toes, seemed to point outward on my one foot, my right foot. And she said to me that I should practice walking with pointing my one foot with the toes going inward so that I had a straighter gait. So what I would do is I go to the track, and I walk around the track, and I try to make that correction with my foot. So I sure don't, I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to have any foot pain. You know, I need both of my feet to get around. So I would walk around the track, and sometimes I even look at my foot to make sure that I'm pointing it inward. And so um, actually, this is actually called physical therapy. And maybe some of you guys have been to physical therapy. You had a surgery or an injury, and you have to correct it. And so I, I would do this walking around the track, looking at my foot, pointing my toe. And sometimes I even say it to myself, you know, Inward, point inward, point inward, you know, as I take those steps. And the purpose of doing this is to train myself. It's to train myself to walk around pointing my toe inward so that my gait is normal, so that I can walk without pain. And if I do it enough, if I practice doing that, pointing that toe inward enough, eventually what happens is I get what's called muscle memory. 
and then my foot will remember without me even thinking about it. It becomes like a working part of my brain. I automatically walk around pointing my toe in, and then I make the corrections. I no longer have that pain in my foot. It truly is a miracle. And I was thinking about that the other day as I was preparing for, for talking about how I show up. And I thought to myself that, you know, this program, these 12 steps, are like a spiritual type of therapy. And in doing these practice again and again, it's training my brain. And it, we talk about this in step 11 where what used to be the occasional hunch becomes a working part of the brain. And by experiencing doing this work again and again, little by slowly, I get a muscle memory. And when situations arise, I learn how to act differently. I learn how to act differently. So the, the other thing I wanted to say is that these steps are meant to be worked. Uh, in, we're, we're taught them in order, but I believe that the steps are more a fluid thing where they're worked all together. So that when I practice uh, step four, and I practice step four, I call it a step 10. I practice it all the time whenever I have a disturbance. My sponsor at the time had told me that whenever I felt the need to tell my story more than once to somebody else, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever like something happens and you just can't wait to tell somebody or you feel like you have to unburden yourself by telling somebody. Well, if that happens to me more than once, then that's something that I need to do a 10th step on or to catalog, catalog through the 10th step process to take a look at what that disturbance is with me. Uh, a lot of the disturbances that I have on a daily basis used to be, and I see used to be because I don't have this anymore, um, I used to be fear, and I would have to do a fear inventory on it. And my fear inventory looks like, what am I afraid of? Why am I afraid of it? And then I ask myself this question, which I did not understand for a long time, and that question is, do I realize that I'm relying on finite self and not infinite God? <laughs> and for like years, I would ask that question, and I would always have the same answer. And the, the same, it was always the answer was, no, I'm not relying on infinite God. And so I would say to my sponsor, why do I have to answer this question? It's never going to be different. It's always the same. And about four years later, I realized that it was to teach me that self-reliance is my problem. It took me four years to realize that all of my problems are because I, I live in self-reliance, trying to run the show. The big book says that we have to quit playing God. <laughs> and when I do that, it helps me to see things clearly when I quit playing God. So the next column was, what can I do so that this fear doesn't happen? And I also learned after asking myself this question again and again and again that one of the things that I can always do is ask God to remove the fear. So I, I've been using the word God, and I just want to say one thing about that now, that this is the God of my understanding. It is not a God of a religious program, of religion. It is a, a spiritual God. You may have a God that is a religious God, and that's okay. I'm not saying that that's wrong or anything, but you may not have a religious God in your life. And if you don't, that's also okay. It doesn't mean that you can't work this program. It is a God of my own understanding. And my conception of God, and when I first started in this program, um, I, was a pra I was practicing a certain religion. But over the course of having experiences in this program, my conception of what a higher power is has changed in my life. 
Um, I, I have a new relationship, as it says in the book. I have a new relationship with my creator. And I like to say that my relationship with my creator is one of that. <laughs> it's kind of silly. But it's like a navigation system. It's something that I use all the time. God is my navigation system, and I am the driver. And the funny thing about the navigation system is it always brings me to wherever I ask it to go, right? Sometimes I, I, I may not like the direction or understand why is it taking me this way, and I'll question it. But if I follow the directions, I get to where I'm going. And the other funny thing about the navigation system is I can turn it on and pretend that I'm going to go somewhere, but if I just turn it on and sit in my house and I don't actually start moving, then it's not actually going to take me to where I want to go. And so I have to be the driver. I have to be the one that drives the car. I have to be the one in this program that takes the actions. One of the very first actions that I had to take in this program was putting down the fork and the knife. I had to become entirely abstinent in order to do this work. So in order to do that, I had to use the tools of the program to get abstinent, tools of fellowship aids, which helped me to get abstinent. And so once I was able to do that, I was able to work these, these steps. And not having the food created a type of a void in my life, like in my gut, that then I needed to have something filled. And that's where a higher power came in and filled that void. My higher power filled that void. Um, and I know I'm getting a little bit ahead in step 11, but I do spend time with my higher power today. It's an important part of my day. Um, I actually have different ways to connect. Um, I listen to certain music or songs that remind me about the love that I feel for my higher power. Uh, I connect to my higher power by going to certain places, like running water for me uh, is a connection. And so I have like um, a tangible relationship now with this thing that I call power, my creator, which is important because I'm going to need the help of that creator and the guidance of that creator if I'm going to be able to have a transformation in my life, I'm graced with a transformation. It's not something that I do myself. It's something that happens to the grace of working this program by taking the actions. So I'm working on categorizing, and I look at what my character defects are. I look at what my part. It's important to see where I set the ball rolling. You know, if I were to take that instance that I gave you about the IRS, where did I set the ball rolling? Probably I should have asked for help earlier on, uh, and I didn't ask for help. But um, eventually, you know, I had set up the arrangement with the IRS, and I was making a payment plan, but I couldn't get ahead of it. Just last year, I ended up getting a lawyer, uh, a tax lawyer, and to get some professional help. Sometimes there's things in program, we have people in program, we have issues that are a little bit bigger and we need to have outside help. And the program is not inconsistent with that. You know, it's okay to get the help that I need. But that help, along with the 12 steps, helps me to get to where I'm going. You know, it's, it's that navigation system helps me to get to where I'm going. So the, after I look at what my character defects are, I turn to step 11, which for me, step 11 is I ask that, well, there's a lot to it, <laughs> meditation, ask for direction in the morning. Um, I just want to turn here to part of my step 11 practice, one of my favorite things here on page 86. Uh, it says, in thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration and intuitive thought or decision. 
We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We don't struggle. So I, I started working with this tax lawyer last year and um, coming up with a settlement with the IRS. Uh, it's a very, it was a very large number. It was a number in the six figures that I had to work out with the IRS. So um, I, I ended up finishing school for court reporting, and I am a court reporter right now. And I did want to tell you a little bit about school. It was really hard to learn the machine like that, to learn that language on the machine. Basically, I, I often say I'm like a reverse musician. I play this instrument, but instead of playing sounds, I play the sounds that you make with your words, and I play those sounds on my machine, and then it goes through a computer and it gets transcribed into English. And it, it's a very difficult skill to learn. And oftentimes it was very defeating because I would take tests at school and I would miss it by one word. I needed to be like 95% or 97% accurate, depending on the test. Because, you know, when, when it comes to court, things have to be accurate. And so what I would do is I would find the mistakes that I made, and then little by slowly I would work on each mistake one thing at a time, changing either the way that I would make, um, write that word on my, my instrument, or um, I would practice using, you know, doing that stroke with my fingers. I would practice the movement with my fingers until it would become muscle memory, and I would be able to get through those words quickly. Because what would happen is I would hear a word, I wouldn't know how to write that word, and then I would get stuck. And as I was trying to think of how to do it, I was losing the words that were coming after it. So when I'm working, I have to be able to have uh, some type of a symbol for every word that somebody is saying. And so I would one thing at a time, one word at a time. And by doing that, I learned how to pick up speed. And I learned how to not get tripped up over things that used to stop me. And it's pretty much the same thing with program. And the 12 steps give me a pathway in order to look at what character defects in my life are tripping me up, stopping me from walking in the sunlight of the spirit. And so I do that by doing a 10th step or doing a fourth step if it's the first time you're doing it. I do that fourth step, and it shows me some of the weaker points in my personality that I need to look at. And it gives me an opportunity to address those things. Now, I address those things through the rest of the steps. Through steps um, eight and nine, I make a list of people that I've harmed. And step eight and step nine, I make direct amends to those people. And on just about every case, except for any case where I might hurt somebody, I'm careful moving forward not to create any more harm. And so... Um, I worked through this stuff with the attorney and the IRS, and I knew, I know I'm running short on time here, I knew that I was going to have to pay a very large amount, and I knew that I was going to have to do things differently. I was going to have to come up with a way to make more money. And so uh, last year around the holidays, I decided to get together with some of my court reporting friends and have a little holiday thing. One of the girls there said that she was going to be retiring from this job that she was doing. It was night work. And she was looking for a replacement for it. And at the time that she said it, um, I just kind of poo-pooed it. I don't necessarily like doing work at night, night court. I call it the Wild West. It's usually pretty difficult work. It's fast. I'm tired. You know, I, I don't normally like it. And so I didn't follow up with anything about that. But then 
after the beginning of the year, she sent a text message to me again and asked me if I was interested in taking this account or if I knew anybody that would wanted to take this night account that she had been, she was ready to retire from. And it ends up that the account was in um, Patterson, New Jersey. And I don't know if anybody knows anything about Patterson, if you're from Patterson, but there's, it's a very blighted area. Um, just as an example, the 9-11 terrorists came from Patterson. So it's not, it's an area that can be dangerous at times. And um, I thought to myself, when I got the opportunity, no, God, you know, I'll do anything but that. I don't want to go there at night and do this work. And then somehow this recovered thought came into my mind. <laughs> you know that recovered thought? It's the thought that it comes in and you know it didn't come from your own brain. It must have come from something divine. Because the thought said, yes, I am going to do the account. I'm going to do that and it's going to work out. And so I started doing this at night. And there's weeks that I work three nights a week. I still work my day job. I work in New York Supreme Court, so I'm in uh, New York City oftentimes during the day. And I started taking this night course. I'm mean, Not night course, excuse me, this night work. I'm taking a bill night course. <laughs> I do this night work. And um, I just ended up paying my taxes. So I had been saving money in my account. In order for this arrangement that I made with the IRS, in order for it to be okay and for me, to have this settlement with the IRS, I have to be able to stay current now moving forward on all of my taxes. And so the amount of money that I had been saving in the account to pay my taxes, when I got my tax bill, it ended up to be the exact amount of money that I had in my account, plus the amount of the very first check that I just got paid from the account in Patterson that I did not want to take, that I decided with this recovered idea that I was going to do anyway. And the miracle is that I have enough. I have enough money to pay my taxes, and I'm going to be okay. And this problem that I've been carrying around since 2011 has finally been lifted from me. It has finally been resolved. Only because I've been able to walk through this problem in my life that I've had with this program and four things that I have that I really feel sets me apart from anybody else that's not in this program. And those four things are the 12 steps of recovery, good sponsorship, a fellowship of support, and a loving God that is there with me every single step of the way through the hard things, through the scary things. I have a method, a blueprint for living that helps me when things get scary. I have a guide, I have support, and I have love. And no matter what I face, I can use this process one day at a time to learn how to do the next right thing. The most important question I ask myself every day, whether it's in my 11-step meditation in the morning, at night, or throughout the course of the day when I meditate after I do a 10th step. And that question is, what would God have me be? What would God have me be without those character defects? Without the shame, without the dishonesty, without the fear, without the pride, what would God have me be? 
Usually my answer is happy, joyous, and free. But I know for sure that the answer is also loving and tolerant. And tolerance is such an important part of my life. Flexibility, adaptability. I often say my sponsor is probably listening on the line right now. My superpower is adaptability. You know, to be able to adapt to what is. You know, we just went through a pandemic. We all adapted. To be able to adapt to a life that doesn't include certain foods that I had been using. To be able to adapt to a life that sometimes feels uncomfortable. But to be okay being uncomfortable and to come through to the other side. There's no greater experience. I just want to say that besides step 10, step 11, working with others is also an important part of my recovery, an important part of change. And working with others and helping other people, I see my character defects again and again through the work that other people do on themselves. We're all basically the same. I have the same character defects mostly as everybody else. Working with other people helping other people to see that things and situations in life that are uncomfortable, we can make it through to the other side. I can end up working towards an ideal. Now, am I going to be perfect? Of course not. I'm a human being. There's no such thing as perfection. But somebody recently said to me that progress is perfection. I'm going to say it again. Progress is perfection. All I'm asked is to move each day and one step towards doing the right thing, the healthy thing. And it makes me so comfortable. When I do the healthy thing, when I do the right thing, I rest assured, feeling so comfortable. Little by slowly, I've been able to do these 10 steps and ask God what I could, what would God have me be. And by doing this again and again, just like walking around the track, when I keep doing that muscle memory, pointing my toes in, when I keep choosing to act as if what God would have me be, I work towards that ideal, that moral psychology of being, having a transformation in my life, of working towards being a recovered person, living a gentle life of love and tolerance, instead of being trapped with those difficulties in my uh, own mind. So the, the, in the big book, Steps six and seven are actually only one paragraph each. I'm just going to read it. It says, uh, we are now ready. Are we now ready to let God remove from us those things which we admitted are objectionable? Can he now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something, we will not let go. We ask God to help us to be willing. When ready, we say something like this. My creator... I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and to my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. And I think with that, I think I'm about at 45 minutes, Melanie. I think with that I'm going to pass. Thank you so much oh, for letting me share this morning. <sighs> indeed, indeed. Thank you so much, Tony Ann. You know, your experience brought so much hope. It's just so packed with hope, and it was easy to identify. 
with what you're talking about today and walk along with you <laughs> with your retelling this morning. It was just delightful, filled with joy. Thank you so much. I wanted everyone else to know, too, that we're going to ask Tony Ann for her contact information at the conclusion of this meeting, so stick around for that. You may have additional questions or, or interest in visiting with Tony Ann and her retelling of this beautiful story. Also, the share ID number for today, Sunday, April 23rd, 2023, is 20187, 20,187. It'll be on our website here soon this morning, and also you can dial it by phone, and I'll talk more about that later. The lines are now open for questions. If you have a question for Tony Ann, please unmute your phone by pressing star 1 on your phone keypad. Offer your first name, the first letter of your last name. And once you've asked your question, would you please immediately press star 1 again to remute your line so it's nicely quiet for the recording. Who would like to ask a question today? Christina J. Bonnie B. Pam C. Bonnie B. Hang on one second. I got a Pam and I got a Susan. I think I'm catching them here. And who's who else? Okay, that's a good start. We have Christina J. Bonnie, I'm not sure the last initial will catch that. There's a few here this morning. And is it Pan? P A N, I believe, and is it Nancy and Susan? So let's start this morning. With uh, Christine J, Christine J, um, with your question first, star one. Morning, Melanie. Morning, everyone. Christina J from the state of North Carolina, and thank you, Tony Ann M, for I think it was Tony Ann M or Tony Ann A. I can't remember. Um, for clarifying something for me, removing the difficulties, which were the character defects. I have struggled with that. <laughs> What are the difficulties I'm asking God to remove every day? So that was really cool. But my question is, um, when I did my fourth and fifth um, and I looked at that sixth and seventh, I wanted God to remove everything. So I'm always confused by, you know, if there's some things I won't let go of. What the heck are those? I mean, I mean, I know that as I go through my life, these things are going to pop up because this is just the beginning of letting go of those things. And God makes me aware of them, and I let go of them. But I can't imagine that there's nothing or anything in my fourth step, fifth step, that I wouldn't want to let go of. So if you could maybe give me some examples of some things that I might not want to let go of, maybe that will enlighten me to some things I'm still holding on to. And secondly, what does your evening routine look like? Thank you very much. Pass. You're welcome. Thank you, Christina J. Nice to hear you this morning. Um, as far as what are some of the things that I don't want to let go of, oh, I have a perfect example. And that is negative thinking. <laughs> you know, um, it's funny, we were just talking about this. I, I grew up pretty much conditioned with negative thinking. And it was, it's so much a part of me. It's very difficult to let go of. And it's comfortable. And I, to be honest with you, negative thinking oftentimes could be exciting. It's much more exciting than, than positive thinking for some people. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting, negative, blah, blah, blah. But it's something that's hurtful. It's hurtful to myself. And I'm glad that you asked that question and brought it up. That negative thinking is hurtful. And yet it's so much a part of me like an old shoe. I just don't want to let go of it. And so how do I become entirely ready, right, and humbly ask God? And it's funny because there's a couple of things I wanted to mention about being humble. Um, the only way that I know to let go of something is by looking at it again and again and again until I become entirely ready. 
And how do I become entirely ready? It's by having the same 10 steps come up again and again and looking at how negative thinking is harming me. So when I do uh, a 10 step, uh, I have to ask myself, is there a fear that goes along with this anger? What I've learned recently that is anger is really fear underneath. When I, whenever I have anger or disturbance, there's usually some underlying fear that is causing me to manifest it as anger. And uh, oftentimes the, that fear comes from negative thinking, me thinking that something bad is going to happen or that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. And when I look at how that actually harms me, then that would prompt me to do a harm inventory. And the harm inventory I do is, is um, it looks like, you know, what, what is the harm I've done? How has this harm affected me? Then I ask myself these two questions. Uh, what could I have done differently? And what would God have me be in this situation? And, of course, I get back to that same question, what would God have me be? And usually it's, the answer is that God would have me be optimistic or God would have me be neutral. God would have me be secure. And so by doing that again and again and again and looking at it again and again, like I said, it's like walking around the track, taking that step, pointing my toe in, eventually it becomes a working part of my mind. And then all of a sudden my intuition, you know, um, our thoughts control our feelings and our feelings control our actions. So I'll say it again. Our thoughts control our feelings and our feelings control our actions. So that if I start to think and start to look at how I think, eventually what happens is it changes the way I feel and then I'm going to change the way that I act. And the way that I do that is by acting as if I do it backwards. You know, I act as though I'm positive. I act as though I'm calm. I act as though I'm optimistic. And eventually I will act myself into to believing and actually becoming that. And I find that that, for me, has been how the changes had to happen. I have to practice it. It's just like any type of a skill. Like when I learn on my machine, I talked about court reporting uh, school. I had to practice it again and again and again until it became so comfortable that it replaced that old shoe and it became automatic. So now I can walk around with a perfect gait. I don't have to tell my brain and look at my foot to make my toe go in. I do it because I keep doing it all the time, and it just happens. Just like that negative thinking was a, a, a pattern that I had in my brain. And what does my evening routine look like? Oftentimes I'm exhausted at night, especially if I have a hard night at court. You know, it's like going from flying an airplane to zero. Um, I try to spend some time relaxing. But I ask myself, uh, there's, there's 10 questions. It's basically page 86 and 87 in the big book. I do ask myself those 11-step uh, questions. Where, was I resentful at night? Was, uh, during the day, was I fearful? Uh, was I afraid? Um, excuse me, was I um, dishonest? Uh, I basically go through that whole 11-step routine that's in the big book. And for me, the 11-step at night is like an overview. I catch the, the, the uh, 10 steps during the day, and then at night I take a look at, like, what are causing all these disturbances for me during the day? Is there something that I'm afraid of? Am I overwhelmed? Is there something that I'm in denial over? And I have to have, like, some serious conversations with my higher power and, and with myself. And then I love that my favorite part in the big book is um, it says that we relax, we take it easy, we don't struggle. 
And I'm careful. I'm careful not to beat myself up. It says that we don't uh, have remorse. You know, it says in the big book not to beat myself up at night. I try to do the best that I can, and tomorrow I start fresh, a new day, a new day to live out uh, God's will. Thank you so much for that question. That was excellent. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Christina J., for your question. Bonnie, you're up next. Bonnie B., I'm thinking. Yes, it is. Good morning, everyone. Oh, Thanks, good. Melanie, for your beautiful service, and thank you, Tony, for an amazing um, share today. Bonnie B. from Minnesota, gratefully recovered. So you talked about ideals, and, you know, I've never done ideals. I'm a wannabe. I have tried really hard to put ideals on a piece of paper, and I can't. I just get stuck in the mechanics of it. Um, and I'm wondering if you have a format or if, if you have, you know, a, a, a description of how you go about that. And if you can give me some ideas, that would be great. And once again, thanks for your share. I'll pass. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for the question. I first uh, was introduced to ideals in step four. So when I'm working with sponsees after uh, they do their inventories, I ask them to come up with an ideal. And what I say is, like, I want you to think about every relationship that you have right now in, in your life and think of what would God have you look like in that relationship. And this has been a really important part of my transformation uh, because it's something that I never really considered before. Like, well, and I'm not saying that I'm going to be perfect. You know, perfect perfection is um, a character defect. So this is just something that I'm going to work towards or aim towards. Um, so what would I look like as um, a mom? What would I look like as the ideal court reporter? What would I look like as an ideal girlfriend? What would I look like as an ideal sister, as an ideal sponsee, uh, as an ideal member of this fellowship? And then I come up with like just things like, let me give you an example. Um, um, what would I look like as an ideal mom? Let's say that, right? I would be somebody, now the ideal is going to change because life changes. So it might be a different ideal when my kids were little than the ideal that they need for a mom when they're in their 20s. Right now, as an ideal mom, I would be somebody that is supportive. I would be somebody that is loving. Uh, I would be somebody that is healthy. Uh, I would be somebody that my children could look up to. So um, I actually ask somebody, you know, my sponsees to make a list of uh, all those ideals in their life, but that's just the practice. The real practice, the real thing about being the ideal is every time I do a 10 step at the end, when I look at what my character defects are, I ask myself, what would God have me be in this situation? Because there's, a, there's an ideal for every situation. So let me see if I can just find, I'll find one of my recent 10 steps for you and show, tell you what my character defects were in the situation. So in, in this 10 step that I did, my character defects were that I was being judgmental and I was being intolerant of the situation that happened. So what would be the ideal if I wasn't judgmental and tolerant, in, in, intolerant? I would be tolerant and I would be accepting and I would be calm. And so in that way, we let God discipline us into who, what God would want us to be. And the only way, and, I, and I'm not going to just do this once and all of a sudden I'm going to become like a, a tolerant, accepting person. But when I do it over and over and over and over again, like walking around that track, pointing my toe in, it becomes a muscle memory in my brain. And when situations happen, 
Here's an example. You know, uh, driving my car. The person in front of me is not going fast enough, and I would get angry. I used to get angry. You know, you know, really, you're not going fast enough. And I would sometimes I would have to do a ten step on it. Well, not sometimes, but there are times that I would do a ten step on that. In my brain, I would say to myself, "Okay, I'm being selfish right now. I'm not. This person is not playing by my script." So I'm, I'm injecting my feelings upon them to do something that I want that's selfish. And so by doing that over and over again, what happens is I start to recognize when I get antsy, if somebody's not going fast enough, I start to recognize that that's selfishness in me. And then after a while, by recognizing it again and again and being in the present moment, I begin after a period of time to no longer be bothered by the fact that the person's going slow I just slow down. And then a miracle even happens. I actually become the person that lets people go in front of me, that drives slower. You know, like, I don't get back anymore. I'm not an aggressive driver. It's become like a more of a working part of my mind. You know, if I, if I need to get someplace sooner, instead of putting it on the person in front of me, not going fast enough, perhaps I need to leave a little bit earlier. You know, where can I make the adjustment to myself? Once somebody's, uh, I heard somebody once say, if you take your skin on your hand and you pinch it, everything on the inside is what I can control. Whatever's on the outside, I have no control over. It's those difficulties, those character defects in my own self is what I can change. And uh, I think I answered your question, Bonnie. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bonnie B., for your question. Next up is Pan C. Good morning to you, Pan. Would you like to give this name of the state that you're calling from, Pam, or no? Hi, Melanie. Uh, this is Pam C. P-A-M. Pam. Pam. Okay, thank you. Yes. Compulsive overeater in New Jersey. And Tony Ann, thank you so much for your beautiful share. So very much. Really touched my my heart and my soul. Um, and, and your talk is exactly where I'm at right now. Um, I just started step six and seven, having just given my fifth step to my, my sponsor this past week. Um, and two, um, two defects that became so apparent to me this time around um, are a lack of discernment that I exercise in certain areas in my life when, when making choices um, that ultimately harm me and and others in the in the bargain and also um a strong tendency to make other people my higher power and that would include Mm. um sponsors other program people um my parents romantic partners um i i really have a long history of turning to others um when I'm in need, not that I don't turn to my higher power, but it seems that I, these people in my life, I elevate their status and they become a higher power than, than God and, um, making decisions based on, um, you know, their opinions and just really relying on them to help fill that God-sized hole inside of me. So, I wanted to ask you if you have had experiences with that and um, having this new information, um, how would you deal with those defects going forward with steps six and seven? Thank you. Pam, it's so good to hear your voice. 
Thank you so much for the question, and thank you for listening in today on the line. It's a great question. Uh, you're talking about lack of discernment, discernment and making other people your higher power. Um, I think about that oftentimes about making – there's lots of things that I can make my higher power. For me, I used to make struggling my higher power. <laughs> I just wasn't comfortable unless I was living in the middle of a struggle somehow. Um, what comes to mind for me often is autonomy. And it's something that I think really is like a, it's a part of an emotional sobriety for me that I've had to learn in my life to become autonomous. And with the word autonomy, you think about a submarine, like a self-contained vessel. And it's not that I don't need fellowship and, and community because I do. But if I have a higher power, that resides within me, that is perfect love, it's security, it is happiness, joy, it's positive energy. And if I have those things within myself, then I can be perfectly alone and at peace with myself and autonomous so that I don't have to absorb the energy that is going on with other people around me Sometimes if I'm with somebody and they're feeling stressed, I might, I might like absorb that stress. Or I want to absorb other people's opinions of me. I'm not sure if I'm saying this in a way that can make sense to people, but learning how to be okay with my higher power and myself allows me to not have to be so influenced by everything that's going on in the world around me because as an entity with my higher power, I'm okay. I'm, I'm safe and protected. I'm safe and protected no matter what's going on around me. One of the things that I found that I have to do is uh, limit my exposure to certain things. So if something's affecting me very negatively, perhaps it's certain foods, perhaps it's a person in my life, perhaps it's situations in the news. What I've learned is that the best way to get to that place of autonomy, to neutrality, is to abstain from that. This is a spiritual program, and spirituality is about subtraction. It's never about adding things in. So learning how to be okay with, with, with less is really important for me. Um, less of worrying about what other people are thinking and more of worrying about what that ideal is that God wants me to be. So it is important, you know, to, to have good relationships and stuff in my life. And if I create an ideal where I show up as my best self, all those relationships in my life are going to get better, whether it's a relationship with a romantic relationship or it's a relationship at work. You know, showing up as the best me that I can helps everything around me get better. And I live the same life as I lived before, but it seems like it's better because I'm showing up better. You know, um, that's half of the battle. You know, it's, it's just that willingness to show up. Um, I want to read, um, there's these 12, there's 13 traits actually of a humble people. And um, I'm just going to tell you what they are. Uh, a humble person. They are situationally aware. By that, that means that humble people are present. They're not in denial. They're not in the future. They're not in the past, but they're present in the moment. Humble people retain relationships. 
Humble people make difficult decisions with ease, so I, we don't face that indecision. Humble people put other people first. Number five, they listen. Number six, humble people are curious. I mentioned that in the beginning, that curiosity breeds uh, positive experiences. Number seven, humble people are able to speak their minds. I can communicate with people what my needs are. Number eight, they take time to say thank you and to feel gratitude. Humble people have an abundance attitude. And by that, I mean that when something happens that's good for you, I can genuinely be pleased instead of being jealous that something as good is happening to you and not to me. So I have an, an attitude, an abundance attitude that means there's enough goodness in the universe to go around to everybody so that when you experience it, I truly experience your joy. Number 10, the people that are humble start sentences with you rather than I. It becomes more about the person that I'm talking to than about me. Uh, people that are humble accept feedback. Criticism is an important part of my program. I accept feedback from my sponsor. Humble people accept responsibility. When I'm, I'm going to have, there's a call to service, I respond. And humble people ask for help. I think that that's really important, asking for help when I'm having a problem. So um, I try to stay humble. I try to stay autonomous. And I try, most of all, to live my life with love and tolerance. And sometimes the, the hardest way to practice those things are for myself. You know, to have love and tolerance for myself as I'm going through this process. And just having patience, because if I continue to do the work, the transformation is going to happen. But I just have to keep moving forward each day doing the work, Pam. Thank you so much for that question. Yes, thank you, Pam C. from New Jersey for your question this morning. Susan, you're up next with your question, please. Susan, are you still with us Yeah, today? hi. Sorry for the lag. Okay. Yes, I'm here. Thank you. What's the Susan? first initial of your last name and your state, perhaps? Would you mind offering that? Yeah, I was just going to Melanie. Thanks so mm -hmm. much for your mm -hmm. service. This is Susan C. in New York. And um, thank you so much, Tony Ann, for your clarity and your wisdom. And you really helped me connect some dots uh, in a very meaningful way and for your in-depth answers. Um, a couple of questions I wanted to ask were asked, but I never have trouble coming up with another one. So what came <laughs> to mind is you mentioned um, your relationship with your higher power, and I found it refreshingly different that it, it had shifted from a religious higher mm -hmm. power to a spiritual one. And I did hear you reflect on uh, using music and um, nature, like water, as, as ways to make it a more, I can't remember the word, but a, 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 for lack of a, a better word, um, to, to just make it more, um, more physical, you know, and um, I'm kind of losing the word that I'm looking for. But in any event, I just wondered if you could say more about that relationship, not so much how you turn to your higher power, which I'm clear about, but how you've cultivated that 
relationship. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for the question. I would love to talk about that a little bit. First of all, I find it important because I do live here in the physical world. This is a spiritual program, but I, my feet are on this physical ground. So I find that it's important for me to have some types of physical uh, things that I can do, which remind me about my higher power, my creator's love. Um, and we have no opinion on outside issues, uh, but I just want to do tell you that I, there is a song I listen to. It's not a religious song. The song is called A Thousand Years by Christina Perry. And it says, I have loved you for a thousand years, and I will love you for a thousand more. And I listened to that song, and it's kind of like my love song to God. <laughs> and I don't know why, but, you know, it doesn't have to be that song. It could be something that connects to you. But find a way that you feel like you can communicate your love to your creator and that you can hear your creator physically communicating that love back to you. And it's, it really is so beautiful. Um, right now I have a candle lit here in front of me. I invite God here. Um, I, my, a while ago, my sponsor had suggested that I use essential oils when I uh, meditate. I do meditate. I have a meditation practice. I spend time in quiet. I think it's so important to shut off the screen, to unplug, and just listen. Just listen to the sound of the universe around me whatever it's birds chirping, cars passing, the noise of other people in the home, whatever those sounds are, just to get some quiet time. And then um, I will anoint a little bit of um, uh, an oil because I want to get that smell. And that smell helps me to bring my senses towards feeling my higher power. So I listen. You know, sometimes I'm outside, it'll be the birds. Uh, running, as I mentioned, running water, that sound, that white noise helps me to feel like connect. Music, visual too. I, I, I moved recently and have an absolutely gorgeous view. I have a view of two beautiful church steeples. I'm looking at them right now. I'm on the uh, 30, three and a half levels up, so it's a gorgeous view. In the morning, I wake up and I see the sky. I get a view of uh, the sunset at night, but in the morning, I get a beautiful reflection of sunset, of sunrise, excuse me. I often wake up with the moon in the sky and a beautiful purple sky. And I wake up and I think to myself, good morning, God. Look at that beautiful sky that you've given me to start the day. <laughs> I know it may sound silly to you, but to me, I just find such joy. I really do find joy in my creator. And I recognize that joy. And that brings that into my heart and starts my day in such a wonderful way where I feel so protected and loved. So I think it is important. I also have a place in my home that I like to sit where I meditate. It's a place that's comfortable to me. So maybe we can carve out a spot where I can sit and feel like I can be close to my creator. So those are all tangible ways because, again, like I said, I live, it's a spiritual program, but I live in a physical world. So I bring those things together to make it like a more real and enriched experience for myself on a daily basis. And I have a prayer that I pray. Um, I didn't get to talk, say this, but I am going to tell you my, one of my prayers. Creator, give me the courage and strength to know who I really am, to act accordingly in my life, and to refrain from diverting my time, energy, and interest into my character defects. Amen. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you for the question. 
Thank you very much, Susan. Steve from New York for your question. It looks like we might have time, <clears throat> pardon me, for one more question, perhaps two. If you're interested, press star one and we'll see how we can work this last few minutes in. Chris G. Hi, Chris G. Sarah M. from Massachusetts. Connie G. Sarah M. Okay, I'm going to go with the two that we got so much. I mean, just so far here, Connie, and if we have an opportunity, we'll we'll get to yours as well. But we're going to look at Chris G. and Sarah M. And Sarah, you hang tight too as well. We're checking the time. We're getting close here. So first, Chris G., your question, and then we'll look at Sarah M. And then hopefully Connie. Hey, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for your share. It's just wonderful to hear you today. Um, can you say something more about God's grace? Um, I would love to hear you say something about how you experience God's grace. Thank you for asking that question. That's a wonderful question, Chris. It's funny, I was just talking recently to somebody about the word miracle, grace and miracles. Um, I used to think that miracles were bestowed on people as a favor and that only certain people were chosen and they would be given a miracle. But what I learned from a spiritual teacher one time is that a miracle is not given to show favor or grace. A miracle is given to teach a lesson. And so oftentimes God's grace comes in the form of a learning, of a learning, that I learn something. Um, and, and learning, there's another word for learning, and actually it is called discipline. So the word discipline comes from to learn. And I find that God's grace often comes to me when I practice certain disciplines. Oh, what my higher power wants me is to learn how to be a better person, how to live towards that ideal. And that comes in the form of grace and showing up, just like what happened to me when I had the grace of having all of the money that I needed. And when I tell you I had to pay taxes, it was a five-digit number that I had to come up with besides the settlement that I had. I had to pay a five-digit number in addition to the estimated taxes that I just paid. And the miracle is that I had that money. I had that money. That's where God's grace comes in. But the only reason why I had it was because I answered the call of doing the work. And I do believe that when I am willing, when I become entirely willing in step six to do the work and I become humble enough to say, no, like, no, God, that's not what I want to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm going to trust that the results are going to come and that the strength will be given to me to do the hard and scary things. When I do that, when I surrender myself to this simple program, that's when I receive God's grace. It comes. It comes when my house is in order and it gets in order by doing the work. It's not going to come by laying in bed and living in denial and pretending that things around me are not happening. Just like I, I read those things about being a humble person when I'm in the present and I see the truth of what I need to do then the grace is right there in front of me. And the light is shine on it, shown on it, and it's absolutely beautiful. And then I come into the sunlight of the Spirit, and I can live a life of ease and comfort because I no longer have to be in fear. Thank you for the question. Thank you very much, Christy, for your question. It looks like we're going to have about three minutes 
um, four minutes or so of tops. So we'll offer um, an opportunity for Sarah M to ask her question. And um, apologies, Connie, for the time running out like it has. But please space and get Connie and contact information at the end of the meeting. Hey, Sarah, your question, please. We have about three uh, good minutes. Okay. Uh, good morning, Sarah M from Massachusetts. Um, such a loving and warm share. Thank you so much for that, Tony. I'm, I'm just so glad to be on the line and hear it. Um, I believe you mentioned um, that after you did a 10th step that you actually meditate. And that's not something I've heard before. Could you elaborate? Do you meditate on the feedback from people or their character defects? Just how it looks. Thank you. Thank you for asking that question, Sarah. I meditate before I get feedback from anybody. Uh, I learned that the very first thing that I need to do is go to higher power. Um, I admitted to God, to myself, and to another person. The first thing I do is, is go to uh, my higher power. And remember how I said I work all of the steps together. So when I do step 10, I then do step 11. I take time to meditate and ask what would God have me be in my meditation. And then after that, I turn to step 12. You know, I do step five. I text all of my um, 10 steps to my sponsor. And so I get, I get constructive feedback from my sponsor. And then I go to step 12, whereas I turn to find some way of be of service so that I can get out of my own head. And I just want to mention, um, before I hang up, <laughs> my sponsor gives me beautiful messages. And one of the messages that she tells me often is that I was born perfect, whole, and complete that I am perfect, whole, and complete. And I love that message. It really embodies for me what recovery is. Thank you for that question. And I thought maybe we have time for Connie, uh, for uh, the next person. Yes, let's give that a go. Connie, are you still there? We, we probably do have about two minutes. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate extending that, Connie. And yes, thank you very much. This is Connie and Highland Council Leader in Texas. Uh, I just really wanted to, if you could go over your team things about being humble again, I was trying to write them all down, and I truly, truly okay. appreciate you sharing this morning. I think Connie, that's a wonderful way. Perhaps you could, if, if you don't mind, since you have gone through them already in the interest of time, would you be willing to contact Tony Ann, get the phone number here, and you guys can go over that in another way? Yes, I would. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, my perfect. apologies, Tony Ann, for interrupting no you. Problem. Maybe that would no be a good problem. use of the time, too. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And I wanted to let folks know that has, we have come to the end of this particular rich, rich time with Tony Ann this morning. Willingness to show up, that really impacted me. And you've continued to extend even more deeply with answering of these questions. It's been quite a moving time here and a great, great piece for teaching for our archives. Please avail yourself of a re-listen of this particular thing. And again, Tony Ann, thank you. Uh, we're going to close so now much, this Ellen. morning by... Absolutely, absolutely. It's just been a joy. We're going to close this morning by reading from the big book on page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only and we'll continue on after the recording has stopped. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who's still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. 
See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you.